0: Welcome to Off Baseline, I'm Nate Staley. Today I'll be speaking with Leslie Doro-Smith on her book Righteous Rhetoric, Sex, Speech and the Politics of Concerned Women for America. And in what will follow a discussion of how rhetoric, religious, political, nationalist, etc. impacts our societal and political imagination. Um, how it frames the dialogue. So it was a really enjoyable conversation, and uh, you would be better for listening to it. Trust me on this one. All right, without further ado, uh, my interview with uh, Leslie Doro Smith. Just a little bit about the book, and I'd like to maybe sort of tie a thread um, between sort of what the areas you cover in your book to now because I feel like we can very easily do that. Yeah. <laughs> um it it flows pretty well so um but yeah so um maybe sort of go ahead and define our terms cuz the book talks a lot about uh chaos rhetoric. Uh right. so what what is chaos rhetoric?
1: What is that thing? Yeah. What is that um, thing? So I should say. Let me say first what I think chaos rhetoric is not. Okay. <laughs> um, to <laughs> to just sort of address address what some uh, not so much critics, but some general critiques of the idea. Right. Argued. Um, I do say in the book that chaos rhetoric is a way of talking, right? Yeah. And it's a way of talking that is intended to elicit a certain effect um, on a large group of people. Okay. I, I do emphasize that chaos rhetoric is a type of declension speech that's intended really to invoke fear, um, kind of a sense of you know it's all going to hell in a handbasket to, to really invoke a sense of of fright and panic and and you know an impending looming chaos, and thus the name, right? right. Uh, to describe uh, some sort of political or social situation that's on the landscape. What it's not, though, is just simply fear speech. And, or, or a fear tactic. And I want to point that out because I think it would be really easy to read the way that I describe chaos rhetoric and say, yeah, of course, everyone uh, who wants to persuade anyone will use a fear tactic in order to get things done. Right. And this is true. I mean, if it's you, effective. if you yeah, it's super, it works super well. Um, I, I think I mentioned this in the book, but I, you know, I mentioned it a lot in class when I'm teaching my students, you know, I use as a parent, I use fear tactics constantly. Um, even though I consider myself a, like a reasonably competent parent, right? There's still a oh, lot yeah. <laughs> of, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. You don't want that to happen. Right.
0: Right. There's some but, things you should be afraid of.
1: Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. So chaos rhetoric, though, was a little bit different. It's the, the way that I'm approaching it is that it's much more than, than just a fear tactic in the sense that I'm trying to look at the much larger picture of what a group argues at one point in time as far as its own platforms and its own identity and what it says in terms of fear tactics along the way, so that its identity changes. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that the heart of chaos rhetoric is the way that it hides or makes invisible the seams of social change. So at one point in time, um, and you know, obviously I was looking at concerned women for America in this book which I happen to have right here. Right? There it is. Like <laughs> Concerned women for America. Park oh, a
0: but... little to the right, a little or to your left. There we go. We got the full frame.
1: Ooh, okay, good. Um, all groups use it. It's not an unusual tactic, right. but it's particularly tricky. For groups like evangelical groups that claim some sort of eternality, some sort of absolutist position, that, you know, when you claim to be inspired by an unchanging deity, it's hard later to change. And, and that's really what I wanted totally. to focus on, is that uh, chaos rhetoric is a way that groups that need to change over time, but that need to conceal their changes, mm-hmm. that such groups can make those changes without appearing to have done so. Right, which would make it
0: less effective in
1: the totally process. So that to me is why we can talk about chaos rhetoric, yes, as a as a type of declension speech. Yes, it is the combination of, you know, I mentioned emotion and you know, you had also mentioned emotion and myth and persuasion, right? Right, Yes, it's it's using a heightened, usually negative emotional state. Um and evoking that state by telling a very narrow slice of reality
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and sharing that reality and the negative emotions that it's likely to evoke in order to get a certain outcome. But again, that if, if you only stop there or if you stop there, that's we're still in the fear tactic realm. But the reason why groups like CWA use it so effectively, and we find this again with a lot of other you know, conservative religious groups in general across the globe, Is that they have to grapple with the fact that they must change to remain alive, you know, from a basic sociological sense, but they can't at the same time admit to those changes or else they go back on their so called eternal platforms. So if I never have to, and I'm now speaking kind of as CWA, but Mm -hmm. if I never have, if, if I can manage to get political support for, let's say, conservative politics in the US in general, and CWA pretty much toes the party line when it comes to um, when it comes to, um, you know, party politics. They're very pro Republican in, in almost every way. So there's 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 no nuance there.
0: Very, very aligned.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, if I need to uh, if I know that my positions are going to have to change or if I'm that I'm going to have to respond to a shifting audience. And that's part of being a good you know, communicator too, right? Yeah. As you, yeah. What you learn in your first you know, speech class is to you know, read your <laughs> audience. This is it, right? right? If your audience changes, then your message has to change. Mm-hmm. And so the point that I try to make in that book is that for groups such as that, that have a lot at stake in these eternality claims, it's usually far more effective for them to talk much more about what you should be scared about than what they actually stand for because the boogeyman can always shift easily and no one will question that Mm -hmm. um but if you can very incrementally realign your own position so that it's much more seamlessly and subtly uh shifted then it's quite a lot easier you know you again you you can move the boogeyman anywhere on the spectrum you need to move it yeah. Um And keep that rhetoric going all the while sort of, you know, uh, making your own seams and shifts invisible.
0: Right. Which kind of makes me uh, kind of for me, it begs the question about um, is chaos rhetoric. And you mentioned this before that anyone uses sort of the yeah. this type of rhetoric. Right. Um, but is there some sort of a uh, a specific appeal to say ideologies that Um, tend to operate more based on fear. I mean, there's it's sometimes it's hard to define, say, fascism or nationalism or things like that. Um, But when people try to do, there's typically something in there about provoking fear, uh, getting getting people in that, um, you know, if we want to use these terms, a fight or flight response Mm -hmm. um, to where you don't sort of use that that uh, that that frontal lobe and, and sort of. Cognitively just determine like what reasonable step would be Uh, maybe speak more uh, to that if you could
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if you think about it those social groups that are defined more by fear also are I mean just in in, in very basic terms. They tend to be more fundamentalist Um, Mm -hmm. And by fundamentalist, I mean they tend to be much more Dichotomously oriented, right? The world is black and white you're for us or against us In other words, they're missing subtlety. They're missing nuance um, so I think we could make the argument that no matter um, whether we're talking about a religious group or not, or you know, no matter whether we're talking about a political group or not, any group that um, adheres to a very rigid kind of fundamentalist black and white perspective mm-hmm. is almost by definition invoking some of the same sort of absolutes that religious groups like CWA invokes. So it seems to me that, you know, and and I'm sure that there could be some exceptions to this. So I'm not saying this is true across the board, but it seems to me that um, the groups that often do the best with fear are the groups that are often our most rigid in saying this is never okay. you know, things such and such. Um, and you know, there are some, there are some cases when this fear is completely warranted, like, you know, child abuse is never okay. Okay, great. We can all all sign on to that.
0: We can all use emotion to
1: and shame and And we should, right. And and according to many scholars, this is one of the reasons we have emotions is, you know, as a, uh, you know, they, they do serve some sort of protective function. Yeah. But at the same time, when we're talking about much more shades of gray, you know, controversial, politically inspired, um, you know, the social fights that go on and we see those fear tactics emerge really strongly, they tend to emerge among those that, again, do tend to have this much more black and white perspective on the world. And, And the way that you persuade people to adopt black and white perspectives in the first place is you scare them. So, you know, I mean, to be super simple about it, um, you know, I'm telling my students all the time, many, many, many things in the world are shades of gray. In fact, the vast majority of things in the world are, you know, fall into the shades of gray category. This becomes completely visible whenever, um, I'm teaching a class like ethics, oh. you know, everyone <laughs> thinks that right. this is always wrong and that is always right. And then we come up with 17 caveats for the, this is always wrong category, right. um, and then everyone's, you know, they, their hands are, you know, they're, they're wringing their hands and they're all upset. So this is how it works, right? If you need to tell a group of people that they need to conform in very rigid, this is right, this is wrong ways. You know, if we, we if we're going, you know, gung ho for that dichotomous worldview, then fear mm-hmm. does seem to be the absolute best way to get the job done.
0: Oh yeah. And it's super effective. Yeah. Right, I mean right. Right. I mean, it's just again, just from the perspective of uh, what can provoke fear. And and even when I think about uh, de-escalation sort of mm-hmm. in, in, in my professional practice, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I, I try to activate that frontal lobe, that left yeah, brain right, thought that, right. um, you know, just maybe get to talking about something instead of getting, you know, getting out of that state. But if you want people to have a visceral reaction and. There's an issue that you want to people to focus on that um, is predominantly works in visceral reactions. Then you have to elicit that. So, right, right. Um, so it's it's super helpful to sort of understand what you're doing if you want to build yeah, some sort of movement. Yeah,
1: exactly. And you know, th- to to perhaps foreshadow something we're going to talk about in a bit.
2: Right, right.
1: If people. We know that people respond far better to emotions than, well, I hate this. I hate, I hate to make, to make this dichotomy itself, but to emotions Mm -hmm. than facts. So I could spend all day long trying to convince you of something. And if you're not emotionally on board, you're not emotionally on board. Right. And so in terms of bang for your buck, uh, people whose job it is to professionally persuade the public, um, have no reason not to use fear in terms of, you know, uh, in, in terms of thinking about excellent marketing strategies, you know, right. It might not right. be the most ethical thing around, but it works.
0: But yeah, ethics are not the, in a, in a list of priorities for yeah. trying to meet your <laughs> political, political, especially ethics your political go- goals. Right. <laughs> ethics are not high up on the yeah, list. Yeah uh ethics might be a part of the uh communication or how you present yourself right right uh you know like you might say oh i'm for ethics reform when really that's part of a uh a strategy for messaging you know so. right right um and so as we're as we sort of get into the political uh realm i kind of think of um sort of where, I mean, you start a little bit earlier in this, a book, but I, in the book, but I do want to start sort of with uh, Reagan using chaos rhetoric Mm -hmm. and sort of what you, um, uh, what you used as an example. Um, He talked about the family Mm -hmm. um, and he used uh, strictly defined in sort of the heteronormative um, uh, nuclear form um, as the family, as the savior of social Mm -hmm. ills Mm -hmm. Um And he contrasted that with the welfare queen uh right, right. uh the living lavishly on food stamps right, right. and uh and health insurance and right, uh, right. And, and and did a tie in with with sexual immorality and so that's kind of um where you create that visceral response right it, or in a couple areas where you do that um but yeah, so t- speak a bit to sort of what you found with that. Anything surprising or
1: Do you mean um in terms of the surprising that Reagan uses that, surprising that um it continues today, surprising what what aspect of Reagan? Well,
2: well
0: I guess it's not surprising that um that That tactic would be used Mm -hmm. or uh, since PR campaigns since, you know, probably near the beginning of the century and beyond have used uh, sort of that. Um, But was the family as a structure uh, or as a tool of of rhetoric was that something um authentic to the reagan administration oh i see what you Um, mean
1: yeah okay so interestingly enough i had totally forgotten until you said this right now i talk about reagan and the family imagery in my new book and i forgot that i used it in this book there's a it's not There's a enough. new book. Obviously yeah. it's not the same thing, but
0: right.
1: <laughs> actually some of the research for my new book, I was looking specifically into the historical context in which that's used. So I'm glad you asked. Awesome. Um, yeah.
0: Right. And yeah. we'll plug later, but yeah, this is yeah, a great yeah. transition. Yeah. Yeah. Me too.
1: So um, scholars who look at the 1970s and kind of America in the 1970s and the state of um, a lot of the political rhetoric at that time. Mm. Do you mention that there was lots and lots of family uh, commentary going on at that point? Mm -hmm. Um, There were lots of reasons for that. Uh, A major reason is that, um, you know, we're talking about the Vietnam War and we're talking about uh, uh, predominantly fathers and sons, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, you know, being, you know, called away, drafted, killed. Mm -hmm. And by the time it's all said and done, we're talking about a substantial number of American men who— Um, are physically or or mentally in many cases maimed by their experiences. And we're talking about, you know, as a result, I mean, in kind of a more practical economic sense, we're talking about a pretty substantial realignment of that you know kind of nuclear heteronormative dad is the breadwinner you know I, I don't know what the connection is between bringing home bacon and and winning bread <laughs> but i've always like totally wondered like what's the bacon bread connection so. um
0: well yeah i don't know yeah um, bacon is super tough i guess yeah yeah, I don't know.
1: yeah gotcha so anyway um but when you have you know a substantial proportion of your you know, your uh, young men gone. And when you have, you know, when you have um, a lot of American men who, you know, uh, hinged their identity to a great degree on being, again, the breadwinner and These people are gone. You know, we've we've, at the same time, what this means is that women are needing to pick up many of those roles that previously Mm -hmm. they might not have, you know, have been doing. On top of that, um, the feminist movement um, really begins to get politically active in the late 1960s. And so across the 1970s, we're talking in addition about large groups of, you know, political activists who are beginning to speak really forthrightly about some Pretty, you know, some pretty substantial gender inequalities. You add to that the fact that in the previous couple of decades we had a number of major pieces of civil rights legislation that are attempting to um, level the playing field regarding race in the US. I mean, it's one thing after another. And I mention all of those things because while they might independently seem like they don't add up to much of anything, um, when The white heteronormative family is the one that in your mind, whoever you are, in your mind represents the American ideal. It's not too hard to figure out. That um, you know, when families, some families are literally collapsing through you know the death of a of a son in Vietnam, and other mm-hmm. families are wildly reorganizing because you know uh, you know the daughter you know has has heard this feminist message, and right. and and now the neighbors down the street who we don't talk about because they're black, you know now they you know they have equal access to this and that. It seems like the world is shifting, and so. I mean, in some ways the world was, you know, I mean, that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. It was a busy to time. <laughs> the family, as I write in Righteous Rhetoric, the family is probably the best fear tactic you can use. It's super, super available. <laughs> and by that, I mean that um, most everyone feels a connection to the word family in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's relatively um Infrequent that you have a person who has absolutely no family at all, or that you mm-hmm. f- you, know, you find someone who has no emotional ties to the concept, right? So right, or history, or anything exactly like right, yeah. right. So yeah. even if there are no living family members that this person, that this hypothetical person might have, they still mm-hmm. are invested in the notion of family, and so right. it's one of the most ubiquitous positive symbols around. Yeah, like there's no one who's going to say I'm against family values. I'm
0: against I'm against right? family values, <laughs> right? right?
1: right? <laughs> no one will say that even if we can agree that what they mean by family values might be this extremely narrow, self-serving, even if I may say unethical perspective, no one's going to say those words. Right. Right. So
0: just my family
1: values. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, So what Reagan did really masterfully was he took the tensions of a bunch of white conservatives and he knit them together into a story about the decline of the family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he laid the blame for the decline of the family on, you know, on welfare queens and on people who, um, you know, it, it, in retrospect, um, I, I know there are some conservatives who have said, yeah, that probably wasn't the most fair metaphor that Reagan used, the welfare queen. And yeah, we know that, you know, the, Example that he brought up was referring to one woman who it was managing to sort of build the system, and you know that, that she was not at all you know indicative of the you know ninety nine point nine percent of the way that right. people on welfare you know were being treated. so is this the sort of political advantage that politicians use all the time? Yes, I get it, right. Um on the other hand, what ended up happening there was that you know he he um codified a symbol that brought lots and lots of people together. And we still hear tons of, of, um, anti-poverty, um, I know welfare isn't around in the form that it used to be, but but basically Mm -hmm. anti-welfare rhetoric that there's no doubt that Reagan fueled with, with a lot of those speeches on the family. And of course the family he had in mind, I think we all know the family was the white heteronormative middle-class and higher family.
0: Uh, right. I mean, simultaneously, <laughs> while this is all going on, there's the AIDS epidemic that he, right, you right. know, that's being sort of completely ignored. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, there may be families, uh, in that sense, that are falling apart, and but right. you know is not part of the con- part of the concern.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. No. No. So, exactly. And mm-hmm. and this is you know kind of like with George um, W. Bush, if. You were a conservative Christian. You knew what to hear in Reagan's words, right? Mm. Reagan dropped a lot of conservative Christian imagery in his speeches. And again, um, you know, not to get biblical, but those who had ears could hear. Right. Um, so
0: it is Sunday.
1: Yeah, it is. Oh yeah. It's Palm Sunday at that.
0: It's Palm Sunday. I should have brought my palm back.
1: So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, those who knew what he was talking about knew what he was talking about, and they right. were able to pick up on those nuances, and they were able to not only resonate with the positive associations they might have between religion and nation and ethics, but, you know, this this perennial sense, and, and all generations in the U.S. have done this, but this perennial sense that everything is going to hell and... Mm. um Kids these days, you know, and and I always love it when historians occasionally you'll run across a book every a a really well-recognized book every decade or so where you have a new historian or or someone like this who will write about um, the chaos rhetoric that every generation has used to talk about the one prior to it. Mm -hmm. So there is literally no generation of American citizens who have not said Oh, our nation is about to crumble if it weren't for those kids. Those like, new people, yeah, right, right,
0: right. The, which the millennials, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. The millennials,
2: right, <laughs>
1: and, and they're zombies too, Watch out. and they yeah. want it. Right, right. So I think once we you, yeah. once you get a sense for what that rhetoric looks like, and mm-hmm. once you see that it's relatively ubiquitous, and once you also see that it's used in very specific situations to get a job done, right. right and, that's what, and this is another thing I tell my students all the time. This is never about, I'm so worried about a vague sense of demise, right? This is always, mm-hmm. I'm using this rhetoric, like when it's coming out of political mouths, I should I should say, I'm okay. using this rhetoric because I want a very specific thing to happen. And this rhetoric is the tool I'm using to get that job done.
0: Yeah. And it's super effective, as, oh, yeah. as yeah. you it's point a, out. Right as, as you highlighted and, you know, and so we get that, um, just again, the Reagan era resurgence of, uh, uh, or may, resurgence, but like, uh, maybe Renaissance is a better word mm-hmm. of moral yeah. majorityism mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, and then out of that comes the group that you talk a lot about the CWA, the mm-hmm. concerned women for America and, uh, or, or, You know, they define themselves as true feminism, kind of Mm -hmm. in a response to the Mm -hmm. this the the 60s uh, wave of feminism. Uh, Right. And and from just from my vantage point, uh, it's fairly obvious that it's basically reactionary politics Mm -hmm. and patriarchal structure with the cover of consenting groups of women. Right. Um, That's which is a side note. That's one of my favorite uh, avenues to go to in a political discussion is, well, um, I i'm i'm jewish jewish so i can't be anti-semitic i dated a black person so i can't be racist um that that kind of um sort of token representation is uh uh, a fun little rabbit trail that we get off uh that we find ourselves on a lot um so but chaos rhetoric basically allowed for this group to project itself into the american consciousness (laughs) like you point out and um as a cultural force um so uh what so is that a fair assessment first of all of yeah. CWA and uh could you speak a bit to um maybe how they used that rhetoric
1: mm-hmm. yeah so um i talk in righteous rhetoric and i also uh will talk in compromising positions which is the new book um mm. about how evangelical types of rhetoric, even amongst people who are not evangelicals are still pretty powerful. Mm. So if you are an American and you have had the sort of media exposure, um, and when I say, if you are an American, I'm not here talking about any sort of legal status. I simply mean if you've been here for a bit and you've soaked up some of this culture, it's hard not to, have soaked up some evangelical narrative along the way. Um, some folks might say, well, this doesn't make much sense, because even though there are lots of evangelicals in the U.S., they are by no means the majority. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, they, I mean, this is correct. They are by no means the majority, but um, they are politically very, very loud. Right. And so... Um, I like to point out that even ideas, uh, you know, ideas that abortion is problematic, ideas that same-sex marriage is problematic, ideas that sex before marriage is, you know, any of these things that that most Americans will agree could be morally problematic mm-hmm. um, are centered on much of the rhetoric uh, for which Christian right groups are responsible and have really been, you know, loudly promoting since the 1960s and 70s. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that, the, that evangelical groups are the only groups to talk about that. Of course not, right? No, no. But it does mean from a political perspective, it's very difficult to find a group that's been stronger than the Christian right in moving those issues to the forefront. So that's, you know, that's, that's kind yeah. of how I look at it is they might not in, be the only ones saying right. it. Right.
0: Right. In America. In America. Okay.
1: Right. They're yeah. not the only ones saying it, but they are um, certainly the loudest and usually best funded ones saying it.
0: Best funded, most yeah. referenced. Right, right, right. So, yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so this this sense then that, um, and I talk about this in the new book, this sense that we can all be sort of thinking like an evangelical, even if we're not one, right, right. Um, is something that I, I take really seriously to the point that in the new book I even hesitate to talk about, um, and I, I know I'm, I'm foreshadowing the new book, like spoiler alert, right?
0: Love it. <laughs> um, no, do it.
1: But so, well, okay, let me say this very fast thing so that this makes sense. Um, the new book is called Compromising Positions, colon... Oh, the subtitle always stumps me. Still being written. Yeah, no, no, it's done. It just got it's decided done. though. Um, is it sex scandals, politics, and American Christianity? Yeah, that's it. I think. I think, or something super close to those words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all those those words. Right. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I'll just call it compromising Gotta, positions because I remember that part.
0: Right. Got to look it up on Amazon to find out for sure, uh-huh, guys.
1: Right. Tell me about it. Um.
0: Or somewhere else.
1: Or somewhere else, right? So, right. Um, in that book, I really get away from talking about evangelicals as a discrete group, and I instead try to talk about evangelical rhetoric as something that many Americans, regardless of any religious affiliation they do or do not or do or do not mm-hmm. have, that they share it.
2: Right.
1: So, I like to think, and I think you know, if I were to. You know, if I were to go back and rewrite parts of righteous rhetoric, I might even I might even make that amendment to and I might make that point stronger. That um, the reason why CWA and groups like it are able to colonize the American imagination is in great part because so many of us had our had our imaginations colonized from the from the very beginning by evangelical frames. Yeah. by birth. <laughs> By, yeah, right. So perspectives on sex are huge. Perspectives on individualism and individual liberties are huge. This idea that I should be able to do precisely what I want without being answerable to anyone else. Right. Um, this, um, th- this um, extremely uh, high respect for um, religion with religion de- defined in explicitly conservative Christian mm-hmm. ways. Right. <laughs> So there are some things that almost all Americans will tell you that regardless of their own affiliations or sympathies, they will, you, you will find resonance with evangelical ideas. I explore that at length in this, in, in this second book, but in, in righteous rhetoric, um, I, you know, one of the things that I, I point out there is that the reason why, you know, these symbols work, the reason why CW, CWA does not come off as some wacky fringe group to a lot of people. Is because this is how we've all been trained to think, Right. Um, even if we don't realize it. So one of the best examples of that, I think, is um, and I don't remember if I mentioned, I don't remember which book I mentioned it in, but um, you know the fact that a lot of um, LGBTQ rights organizations today still attempt to appeal to some of the structures of Christianity to prove their legitimacy. Well, you don't have to, uh, you know, there are passages, you know, in, you know, the book of Psalms that refer to this. And then, you know, there's the story of this that shows us that, you know, all God cares about is love. And then there's this other story over here that's simply been misinterpreted. And really it's about, but this need to appeal to the Bible Mm -hmm. as your source of authenticity and thus your source of social worth, right? Right is already a symptom of having your imagination colonized by this evangelical sort of thinking. Right.
0: It shows where the Overton window is of that discussion. Yeah,
1: right, right. Yeah. Right. right mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. So yeah. That's, yeah, that's I mean, where our
0: imaginations are framed from the start.
1: Right. So I mean, so to circle it sorry, I, I rambled there. To to circle the no, wagons. <laughs> um, right. yes, this is I mean, I think it's really important to say that this mm-hmm. is why that sort of rhetoric works really, really well. Um by groups like CWA. So at the very end of the book, you know, I make the point that it's not an unusual type of rhetoric, right? Tons right. of groups use it. And as we mentioned oh, yeah. earlier, they would be stupid not to, just in terms of bang for your buck. But I try to point out that in my from my perspective, at least, Christian right groups use it particularly well. And the reason why they use it well is because, again, they have sort of this moral... Um this this there's the perception of moral authority and so they often get attention just from you know folks that, that are much more likely to believe kind of a traditional Christian narrative about both society and the nation. Right. But That's a cultural because,
0: wealth. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right.
1: Um because they have uh political and financial support that makes the dissemination of that message and the connection mm-hmm. back to, you know, to their platforms, right. um, you know, r- relatively accessible. Um, but also because it's not a hard message to buy if you are already inclined to believe some of the basic structures into which they buy. Mm-hmm. So this is what I meant earlier about colonizing the imagination. Um, here's an example. So if my daughter says to me, I think I want to become a prostitute when i when I grow up, mm. right? Um, yeah, My answer to that is probably, like hell you are right
2: mm-hmm, right
1: now um i am believe me i am fully aware of all of the reasons why prostitution happens that yes. we know that the majority of not not necessarily majority but a large proportion of prostitution is an act of desperation this is not something that happens because many women want it to happen i'm, I, I'm not trying to right, to right. gloss over that at all but we also do know that there are women and men who are sex workers who enjoy this career and and for them it is a chosen career right and they do it knowingly and they um they are aware of the risks they are aware of the benefits and some some simply choose this so if my daughter were to come to me and to say this if she were one of those who who, you know for whom this was a you know a a choice made with full agency Mm -hmm. um even though i could you know i've got lots of knowledge at my disposal regarding, you know, why sex is an act that is not really fundamentally different than a lot of other acts we do with our bodies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even though I could talk about kind of the pros and cons of that particular choice, and even though I could, just from a bare bones ethics perspective, I could identify a lot of other career paths that are far more so- socially acceptable that from, again, a basic, basic ethics perspective, do a lot sure. more social harm. Right. There's no part of me that's probably going to be comfortable with with her as a as a prostitute.
0: Now, of course, that's just from from the perspective of uh, like all the possible realm. You know, I think about a lot of career choices that my son could yeah. make that I would be um <laughs> uncomfortable with True. just from from my background my history yeah, you know right, if right. you wanted to and if he wanted to play for the NFL i'd say like hell you are because right. No, no, right, 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 i don't right. want his brain to get smashed in yeah no
1: no i right. i i feel the same exactly. way right yeah i so but but playing for the NFL would bring him a level of prestige. But,
0: but that would be culturally a different place. It would be
1: culturally a yes. different place, right. So I, I point this out because I might, as a scholar who studies sex stuff, <laughs> right, I can cognitively recognize mm. um, all of the different ways in which a career in sex work, if one freely chosen, one enjoyed by the person, one that is fulfilling, one that provides benefits to many people, right. um, I can fully recognize that that might be a perfectly ethical choice. If we understand, and I don't want to, I don't want to railroad. The, right, the this could this could ethics. trail
0: off really easily. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but um, I can recognize. I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, it would be difficult to find a lot of overt harms. Let's put it that way. Um, except for offended people, and right. offended people is not a harm, by the way. That's you're, you're always going to find those guys, those the offended right. people. <laughs> yeah, um, always there. Right, always present.
0: always in the comments.
1: What is different, right? What is different is that the emotional baggage that, that you have, that I have, that most people have about that sort of thing about sex work is something that, um, it, it comes from somewhere, right? These are not, these are not random, uh, biases we have for no reason. You know, we can historically trace where these things come from. Um, So did did you want me to comment on CWA and the feminism thing? You had brought that up at one point and I didn't really. Right,
0: right. Even um, so, I I just it's you spend a decent chunk of the of your book um, sort of looking at their core principles and how they use this chaos rhetoric to exemplify it. Um, So, yeah, if you want to go in a little bit more um, um, kind of speaking to um, maybe how. Actually, let me just transition to this. Mm -hmm. So you write about a pervasively negative connotation with the term feminism as a as a fruit of CWA's labor, basically. Um, So, you know, I I can attest to this being brought up in a conservative Christian context, Mm -hmm. Um, attending a conservative Christian undergrad with its ecosystem of conservative values um, I'm struck by how certain terms and concepts uh, pervade kind of a distinct space in my instinct. Right. Right. Um, even as my politics have changed over the years. Um, so I'm, you know, light years away from where I was when I say I was 14.
2: Mm-hmm. Right,
0: um, right. Thank God for that. Uh, but it was a major sort of re-educational process when I explicitly acknowledged mm-hmm. what my what my own attitudes and ideals were towards feminism. hmm. Um, but the, the permeation of, of how CWA sort of realized they could, um, sort of provoke what we've already talked about, um, is, was really effective. So, um, maybe if you could speak to how that happens and you kind of did.
1: Yeah. So, um, CWA began when Beverly LaHaye, um, as she tells the story, right. Um, when she became enraged at watching feminists on TV speak for American women. So the, the movement began in some ways as a reaction to, uh, to mainstream feminism. Mm-hmm. And as you chart the, the rhetoric of the organization across time, you'll find a f- what, what appears to be a fairly consistent anti-feminist sort of rhetoric. And um, there's a whole chapter in the book that's about that, where, um, I try to show that, you know, that the way that, that CWA discusses this is that there are true women and fake women. And, um, obviously CWA, those are true women. And, and, you know, feminists are, 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 are fake women. And, you know, they're not real women because they're not, they're not supporting other women in their destiny of motherhood and marriage and, and things like this. Now,
0: just trying to mess it all up,
1: messing it all up. Now, (laughs) Of course, what is terribly ironic, and this is, this is one of the functions of chaos rhetoric, is that um, there have been very few uh, uh, mainstream feminists who have argued that getting married and having kids is bad. Um, almost all of those speakers have, in fact, said that those should simply be choices. Um, I want to point that out, because as you look at how CWA's rhetoric on feminism changes over time, and this is something I do address in the book, by the time that we get to the early 2000s, CWA is beginning to actually sound like mainstream feminists. And so they're beginning to they're beginning to publish stories that say every woman should be able to choose whether she marries or becomes a mother. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, you know, how, how can you construe this as somehow anti-feminist? But again, that's sort of the point of chaos rhetoric is that mm. if it's really critical now that a movement must change the way that it speaks in order to meet the culture where it is, right? From a sociological perspective, you have to adapt to the culture or you will die, right, as a a social group. If that's going to happen, then the way that that's got to happen is if you construe your ideological enemy as something that they are not, first of all, right? So in this reading, then you know uh, mainstream feminists become you know man-hating, you know children-killing, you know what, whatever's um, right. baby and, eating, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And then CWA's version of true women become the reasonable, rational women who think all women should choose this, and you know, and 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 that's where we get this really interesting substitution of a CWA feminist. For a mainstream feminist. So later on, a little bit later on, um, just right after the turn of the 21st century, um, there's some new rhetoric that pops up. And um, in this newer rhetoric, uh, CWA actually embraces the term feminism at one point um i have not dug into the annals of the website since finishing that book to see if there are if there are little tidbits where that word is still embraced but i do want to share with you something that i ran into a few weeks ago that gives me the indication that at least the spirit of that idea is um so in 2003-2004 cwa is publishing some stories where they're having. I think at this point we're talking about maybe some of their interns are writing stories, and some of their, you know, they have kind of a um, a youth college force that sometimes does some of that work, but. They're writing stories about how the true feminists of the U.S. were what we would call the first wave feminists. So these were the people, the the women who in the early 20th century were fighting, you know, like um, were fighting, you know, like um, suffrage. Yeah, suffrage. Suffrage But they're also fighting against alcohol and they're also trying to get right. right, They're trying to get um, education for women and, and all of these classic things. Um, that we often associate with, you know, seventh grade history. Right. Right. Um, And so, you know, Carrie uh, Nation and, you know, and and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and all of these names, Mm. you know, from the late 19th, early 20th centuries get drummed up and and put together. These names that many people don't actually even, unless they really paid attention, Um, don't.
0: Unless they're reading straight out of the history book. Right. Right.
1: right. They, they, Mm -hmm. they don't really know what that person was, but they just know, Woman writes old good, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> the only associations that they make.
0: Boiled down really well. Though. Right,
1: right. <laughs> right, four words will do it. Um, so that was, that was the tone of some of these pieces coming out. And I mentioned, in fact, that one of those particular pieces in the book that um, the argument is explicitly made. The early 20th century feminists were the real ones. Then we have the fake feminists who show up in the 60s and 70s, and they hate men, and they hate children, and they don't want equality. They want, you know, women to dominate everyone else. And here we are, CWA, attempting to right the imbalance. Mm -hmm. And we fundamentally care about and want to protect women, and we're rallying for women's rights um, in a way that the fake feminists did not do appropriately, but we CWA are restoring the early 20th century's um, legacy and we're allowing it to live on today.
0: So, that's so it's a yeah, revising history yeah, in a way right. to look like you are the true original. And so yeah. by, by, by doing that, they're able to sort of make these arguments of conservative, femi- yeah. uh, uh conservative feminism.
1: Right. Right. So, on their website quite recently, um, in fact, it might still be there. I didn't check it today, but it but it very well could be there today. Um, there were um, all sorts of articles about the Violence Against Women Act and also about the Equality Act. Both of these are recent pieces of legislation intended to, um, obviously in the case of the Violence Against Women Act, to ensure that, that you know, that, that women are not abused, murdered. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a number of different planks that are built into that that have to do everything with laws and guns and a variety of things. And then the Equality Act is um, kind of an addendum to the Civil Rights, or it's intended to be an addendum to the Civil Rights Act. And it is to sort of um, <sighs> inculcate into that a statement, um, kind of like what the ERA was intended to do, um, mm-hmm. To say that it's illegal to uh, discriminate based on gender, sex, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation.
0: Right. Establish a basis for equal wages. Right, right,
1: right. So CWA's argument has been this. You must call your politician to vote against the Violence Against Women Act, and you must call your politician to vote against the Equality Act because both of these aren't really about women. They are about giving protections to trans people and particularly to trans women. And we all know that trans women are really men who are looking for a free ride. And so <laughs> yeah. if you, if your politician votes yeah. for these things, then we will have fake women hurting real women. So,
0: so I mean, that takes it to a whole new level yeah, totally, then that's like, totally uh, Right. So like you, yeah. it's, it's every sense of the word, you yeah. know, if you're trying to paint that imagination of not us, you know.
1: right. yeah. There so you this is what, this is to me, you know, and I'm glad we're talking at this point in time about this because, um, righteous rhetoric was, um, was now published five years ago and mm. the political landscape has substantially changed since the I time. think that's,
0: that's safe to say. Uh, yeah.
1: And, um, it's now also given us a little time to step back and look, at how this this type of, of talk continues to be produced by this and various other groups. Yeah. And um, whereas there was, you know, obviously CWA would never say, we really want women to be abused and murdered. You know, obviously, no, no one wants this, right? <laughs> um, sure. But the way that it is presently positioning itself as a force to protect women from um, predatory trans women, And they would, they would simply call these men, right. Uh, Um, right. Seeing themselves as, you know, protecting women against, against predators Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, and being the advocate for gender justice. That is absolutely part of the rhetoric right now. And again, this is how it works is if you, if it's dangerous for you to define your own position too rigidly, right. Mm -hmm. Because then you're going to be in a hole somewhere along the way later. Right. It is always safest for you to find a new enemy and to readjust and realign, find a new enemy, readjust and realign. And so that's what we see happening.
0: So that's some of the ubiquity that you're, that you're talking about, about chaos rhetoric, about how it can mean all things to all people and it can adjust and sort of morph into the next enemy. Oh yeah. 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 But it is enemy oriented. And, you know, I think of, I think specifically, I guess, in this context of the men who are standing outside of the Target bathrooms Mm -hmm. and saying, I'm going to go into the women's room and protect my little girl, you know, from uh, some uh, a a subgroup of people that he's likely never met and definitely doesn't understand. Right, right. Um, but this perception has been created and this emergency of mm-hmm. an enemy invasion, you know, and, and exists. And so there's that sort of like people take it to that extreme, you know, like it might be reflected in attitudes, but some people actually do act on that and yeah. march into the bathrooms to defend uh, you know, whatever's going on in there,
1: you know, I and mean, I think that's one thing that we have seen particularly, I mean, if, you know, if you look at the rise in hate groups and hate acts and, you know, all sorts of mm-hmm. different, um, much more obvious demonstrative, uh, um, acts of prejudice, hate violence, you know, since the election of Donald Trump, I mean, I think we're seeing that take place, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not saying obviously that, that, you know, that we were living in some sort of paradise prior to that, but mm-hmm.
0: No, no. Statistically speaking, there are more instances of hate crimes and and violence against people of color. That's just that's just there.
1: It's just the numbers. Right. Right. Right.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Um, So are you tracking with C.W.A.'s post 2016 influence a lot? Are are you running into that with your new book or or sort of?
1: Well, so I don't specifically focus on CWA in the new Mm. book, but um, there are things that overlap a lot um, that I I didn't. I mean, I knew. I don't know. It's not like I blocked this first book out or anything. But um, (laughs) there are some there are some similar themes. So um, here's here's an example. So (coughs) um, the new book is also about rhetoric. The new book is also about evangelicals. Um, although much more as I said broadly defined I, I I think about evangelicalism here as a way of talking rather than as a group,
0: sure, yeah, which is what you you're in the realm of uh, communication <laughs> right. Right? yeah right. so that makes sense. and
1: um and I'm also talking in this new book about um conceptions of American nationalism, which you know which mm-hmm. ties really closely into a lot of the the work that CWA does. So I don't mention them by name, but I do. Um, I'm I'm continuing with the same line of thought that I began with the first one. Um, mm. I started um, I started thinking about this book several years ago. Actually, not long after I finished Righteous Rhetoric, because right. I was just completely stymied by the fact that Americans could, first of all, get so worked up over political sex scandals. I mean, that that there just could be so much. Time and energy and perseveration. Um, right. In a lot of cultures, uh, sex scandals are much less likely to happen, in part because the culture just at large doesn't care as much about the personal life of the politician.
0: Um, oh, also, yeah, I remember being aware of, like, sex scandals happening in France and, yeah. and it being totally not a big deal. Right, right, And, right. and this was, like, after Clinton years. Right, you know?
1: exactly, exactly. Right. So... I was intrigued by that on the one hand. Um, I think additionally, another thing that sparked my intrigue there was the degree to which, in a sex scandal, politicians tend to pull out all the religious speech, um, and the degree to which they rhetorically attempt to jump certain political hurdles that they anticipate are coming in the future. And so we're we're back again to family talk and you know sin and forgiveness talk and you know about. You know, what makes America a great nation? You know, it's, it's all the same sort of uh, soup. Right. Um, you're just eating it in a different restaurant. Soup. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so. So that was that was of interest, too. And then when Donald Trump became a presidential candidate was where I felt compelled to start writing um, because I it was um, at first. I, I was like many Americans where I was like, oh, surely not. Surely this is not happening um the,
2: surely, the denial phase right yes. sure,
1: well but even like i mean i think i even remember thinking he's had too, he's clearly had too many affairs that mm-hmm. will come up somewhere he will be you know he'll be forced to resign along the way and this is just how it will be so i did not anticipate at that time that americans that so many conservative americans in particular would so warmly accept someone who um you know in, in well let me, let me tell you a poll, because I'm, I'm, I'm talking around this. So um, one of the statistics that I mentioned in the book is that um, during the Obama administration, um, a group of conservative Republicans were asked about their tolerance for a politician who was guilty of some sort of illicit affair. And um, only since, uh, and I don't remember the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but it was something like 30% of Republicans were like, that would be appropriate. You know, if this person's a really great leader, And, um, you know, they are really committed to making, uh, you know, America a better place to be. And they really followed the party line on this, this, this. Only 30% of Republicans said they could get behind that, right?
0: Yeah, then that will be acceptable. Right,
1: Right. so they rerun the poll after Trump is elected and the number jumps to like 70% or something. You know, it's more than double, right? Right. And so um, I have long been really interested in... What makes people, for lack of a better term, hypocritical? Um, i I hesitate to use the word hypocritical because it makes it sound as if um, only some people are when, in fact all people are. Uh, sure so maybe I should say i, I have a I have a, a longstanding interest in what makes people inconsistent. Um, and so that's one of the basic things that you have to accept when you're going to study humans is that they really suck at consistency. I mean, they're real right. bad at it. <laughs> right. So um, I wanted to understand this phenomenon of political sex scandals in the public's response. I had a sense that it was connected in some degree to this evangelical narrative that so many of us again have, you know, have, you know, up and working in our brains about what is appropriate sex, gender, reproductive, you know, um, um, you know, templates or, or lives through which we might live. Um, and I was also just kind of really interested in the way that, that, that people handled their own inconsistencies. You know, how do you say that you're a family values person and then vote for a person who stands against everything you say you believe? Now, now I am not, by the way, I want to be super clear. I'm not arguing one way or the other that a politician's sex life should be a part of of political conversation. I'm not arguing Right, that's
0: not the focus. No, no. Um,
1: And I don't express my opinion on that in the book either. Mm -hmm. Um, What I am interested by is in thinking more thoroughly about how people can tolerate what are, at many points, glaring inconsistencies regarding uh, politicians and their sex lives and why they can care so deeply about again a person they've never met, their private Mm -hmm. life and and what really should be, I mean if we're all being honest, what should probably be a private conversation between um a politician and um and their spouse, you know, in this particular case. Right. So um that yeah, that led to compromising positions. And at first I thought that I was going to um write a book about all the ways in which the evangelical narrative of um, forgiveness and redemption had saved some politicians, and had, like, crash-landed with others. And then the more that I got into it, I I realized that I had to write a different book, um, because the the data just didn't necessarily support that. (laughs) Um, And what I discovered, um, which dovetails totally with the the political scene today, um, what I discovered is that uh, amongst male politicians who are guilty of some sort of sexual indiscretion— and by the way, I studied only male politicians— because a there's a lot more of them <laughs> yes and b you have uh, a very very small number of female politicians who've been caught in sex scandals at all and there's there's literally not enough to make any sort of representative sample
0: so there, there might be a story i don't i don't i don't even know yeah, like <laughs> i i can't draw one out of memory
1: it's it's like a handful it really is it's it's uh it's again it's really not enough to make a statistically significant proportion to discuss So what I wanted to do was to examine why some politicians perish and why some don't, you know, like why do you have Donald Trump's? And then, you know, why do you have a bunch of other guys who, who don't make it? Um, And the thumbnail sketch is that I discovered that the more that a politician um, ascribes to a hyper-masculine set of motifs, the more that a politician comes off as aggressive, uh, Uh, an aggressive white American man, the more that a politician comes across as red-blooded, perhaps borderline violent, the more that a politician uh, engages in anti-immigrant talk. Basically, the more that a politician comes off as this hyper-masculine, hetero white guy, the more likely he is to be able to have a political career after a sex scandal. To to get away with it, yeah. Yeah, basically. Now, this is borne out in... uh, an unfortunate little tidbit that's totally TMI, but I will now share it because it's critical. <laughs> um, politicians who engage in sex acts that are virtual or that are not uh, procreative, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky um, never engaged in penile vaginal sex. Right. They did lots of things with cigars, but um, <laughs> that, or, or we yeah. think about the number of, um, a number of politicians who I mentioned in the book, um, were found guilty of sexting. Right. Mm, so we right. can think of Anthony Weiner. we can think of Mark Foley. Wiener, yeah. okay. mm-hmm. Um, usually a politician who has engaged in, um, in some sort of physical sex act. I mean, sexting is, is usually, uh, is usually the end of your career because it's seen as not super masculine. Right. I mean, you didn't actually sure, do yeah. the deed you, you know, right. this was like fake sex.
0: Yeah. Um, couldn't, couldn't even, you know, exactly. The, right. Right. Um,
1: and so, um, there is, and it's not true in all cases, but there is an interesting sort of correlation between men who, um, engage in, in physical sex acts with women. Um, and particularly if they are again, like penile, vaginal penetrative, if they are procreative, um, where they tend to be seen as more manly, and thus they tend to survive better than if the sex act in question was virtual.
0: Which is fascinating to me because it I, really. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, so you could almost write a book about that. Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: and I did.
0: Uh, and and <laughs> right, and, right, right, and right, thank God. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So so it 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 gives you sort of a blueprint then uh to look at um how some because it's it's the total constant obsession i would say with at least initially with the media is how is this happening and uh you know there was a medium article after medium article or Vox or whatever about this is why Trump happened. And, you know, this is why he's different. And it's almost a completely different theory each time. Right. Um, But that's because it's just so hard to define because we're not stepping back far enough to look at the picture. We're just looking, you know, and I always sort of think of Trump as the symptom and a lot of people do as the symptom of something, you know, more cultural, um, yeah, and more historical. Um, but that, but that, so looking at it from the, from that lens of, um, what is the acceptable norm and, and what it, what role does masculinity and hyper-masculinity play and whether we can approve of something or, okay shame something and right. I mean, looking weak is not going to get you very far. Uh, you know, I think of, this is why I think Trump is as grotesque as he, as I find him, um, Looking at him on the stage with all those other Republican primary candidates, he so masterfully uh, was able to just trash them in, in a political sense because he... Uh, knew how to make them all look weak yeah,
2: right, right.
0: <laughs> kind of flow from what you're talking about. So he pointed out you know, little Marco or, uh, you know, S- or sleepy Ben Carson or, you know, uh, Jeb, poor little Jeb, his Low mother energy, doesn't even like him. Right, Low energy right, Jeb. Right,
1: right,
0: Um, and that, that, that's what that made me think of as yeah. you're describing that.
1: Right. So, you know, he, he, <clears throat> Functions rhetorically and here's the thing is we we all know that he's not a great um he's not a great speaker he does not use words that in, in a way that display any sort of finesse or nuance you know that no one disputes this he has the best supporters. words yeah right right he uses only a few of the words and not always in the most beautiful way but what he does do in a in a very masterful way and I'm not even sure it's intentional but it's working um is that he makes a large proportion of Americans feel like that when he's in charge, their nation is great. And one of the things that I discuss in the book is that um, those candidates, again, who tend to survive these scandals tend to be, um, they tend to be white, male, wealthy, powerful. This is true. But it's not so much that, because the people who also perish also tend to be those things. The ones who survive are those who, um, by and large, are able to talk about America as a place that is white, that is straight, mm-hmm. that is strong, and right. who are able to sort of back that up with their own, you know, white heteromasculine appeal. And so uh, when, in, in, every ch- in most of the chapters throughout this book, I contrast a politician who um, survived and a politician who didn't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite chapters is the one uh, comparing Anthony Weiner with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and yeah. you know Anthony Weiner, um, particularly in the media, the way that he was humiliated. And remember that that um, as far as we know, that the sex acts in which he was engaged were all virtual. Um, you know, but his decline was swift. And Arnold Schwarzenegger admitted days before the California you know governor's election that he was in fact guilty of physically assaulting, mm. sexually assaulting a certain number of women. Um, he's written, ex- you know, he's been interviewed extensively about his sexual practices. Um, and you would have to be an absolute moron to believe that Arnold Schwarzenegger was not in- engaging in any sort of illicit sex at the very least because he admits he was, right?
0: because he told you <laughs> he tells us, right? <laughs>
1: right? Donald Trump. I don't know if you've ever read Donald Trump's business books. I happen to have done so for this book. Um,
0: I've not had the privilege yet.
1: Yeah. Donald Trump talks in some of his books about his affairs. And you know it is not a secret. Uh, so
0: closely related to my business practices.
1: Exactly, right. right. And, and that's the way that he construes it is that he is so popular and well known and mm-hmm. so much an icon for so many people in the world that he can have you know whatever woman he wants.
0: It's part of the brand.
1: Part of the brand, right. right.
0: So I guess, and I want to be respectful of your time here. Um, so I guess that sort of brings us, you know, just to just to just to tie that line, just to draw that line between points here, um, as as we summarize uh, the Reagan moral majority. We have the uh, you know, you talk about the the Clinton years and, and some in and some ways in which and, you know, the point can easily be made of. When cl- the election saw some reaction sort of against that, but then also some of the policies that I, you know, I think that uh, the like welfare reform for mm-hmm. one during the Clinton years were a continuation of this right. of right. this whole thing, um, um, you know, kind of that welfare queen uh, right. mentality. And we have the Bush years and Obama reaction. So it's kind of a back and forth thing uh, culturally, which brings us to today with the Trump administration. And it flows fairly easily, I think um, as we look at the utilization of the same strategies and the same use of rhetoric um, coming from many sources and, and synchronizing between um cultural groups and the messaging of the administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I, I, what are some examples of uh, chaos rhetoric as far as uh, some of the policies that you've seen? Um, You know, I think of the immigration, I've talked a lot about the immigration uh, issue uh, on this podcast.
1: One of the things that I think it's important to remember about chaos rhetoric is that while anyone can use it, not everybody uses equally good facts when they do. Mm hmm. And I point that out in the book, but I feel compelled to point it out again, because just because you're saying that two very different groups utilize the same rhetorical tactic does not mean that the facts behind the rhetorical tactic are equally verifiable, right, are equally valid. Right. So, you know, probably the um, one of the most obvious examples of this in the Trump administration is is starting to talk about Mexicans in particular as bad hombres, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the insistent conversation about immigrants as um, a sort of, again, a, like a predatory people who are attempting to uh, violate laws. Um, this, while Trump is actively attempting to violate uh, asylum-related laws, right? right? It's completely, it's completely, though, emotionally easy. You know, if you believe that there, you know, is a group, uh, you don't know, you're, you're the average Trump supporter, and you, you, you believe that there is um, a group of people about to beat down the door to your house. I don't know.
0: Um, right. Someone in Kansas is thinking right. that the, the, right. caravan is, the caravan is is coming, coming for their here, front right, door. Right. Yeah.
1: And, and let's be honest, there are some places where the where a caravan t- well, could go when I, I don't want to diminish that. <laughs> like I
0: could go everywhere. somewhere. Sure. Right. Yeah.
1: They end up somewhere. But this, this notion that, that, um, Americans are constantly on the edge of some sort of peril. Mm. Is a theme that has that is so old it is as old as the country itself. Um, one of my favorite books—it's an older book now. Um, oh, I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but it's called *Hellfire Nation*. Um, I'm going to look that up because that's going to yeah,
2: drive—that's
1: yeah. going to drive me nuts. Um, but the the whole reason why it's an interesting um, book is because this particular historian makes the argument that as i was mentioning earlier oh james marone
0: james marone is, yeah el fire nation
1: fire nation marone let let's see i that, that name just came to me let's see if i'm right yeah i am. james marone there is. all March. right anyway yeah we got it um now i I, as, as a person who is not an historian, I don't want to say that I, you know, that I can completely validate, uh, you know, I, I didn't, uh, look at his historiography, right? So I'm, I'm not necessarily saying this is the end all be all book. But one of the things that I really liked about that book was that when I was, um, in, when I was writing my dissertation, I first happened upon it. And he lays out how in every generation, Um, or every major shift also kind of in American culture, there has been an uprising typically of conservatives who voice some concern about a social change that's going on and who construe it as something that is potentially catastrophic to the survival of the nation. And if you were to count all the times, according to Marone, that the nation has almost failed— it's every single day, right? <laughs> and so what, what, I really, what I really enjoy about this historical examination is that it really helps us to contextualize the rhetoric that we're seeing today. And I think it's very, very difficult to say that what we're seeing today and what Marone is talking about, these are almost always about issues of gender, race, and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Almost always. They also frequently are about issues of class, so when we talk about issues of gender race and ethnicity um those are sometimes easier visibly to see right it's it's visibly easier to see someone who you you know if they have a skin color that differs from yours or if um you know their body is different than yours then it's it's uh, a little easier to peg them uh, with with certain stereotypes but a lot of times you know uh when we talk about class and when we talk about poverty, that's a masked way to talk about race. Right. And so, um, one of the things that he points out is that the U S has never not been engaging in these hell in a handbasket narratives without at the same time, um, seeing those narratives as ones that are fundamentally about gender, race, class, what have you. Um, we've
0: always looked at it that way.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. So it may appear that this conversation about immigration is rooted in a new series of political issues. Mm. Um, so when Trump recently said that immigrants can't come here because we're full. Right. Um, yeah. Now, I, you know, obviously he didn't elaborate on what that meant, but one would believe right. that that means that there is literally no room for people.
2: Yeah.
0: No. Um, every, Grand Canyon's full. Yeah. Every, every right. People... Right. <laughs> All literal sea of humanity Right,
1: right right but as we know across the u.s there are many places that are actually um because of a number of factors that are actually kind of hurting for people and hurting for workers and um there are lots of places that have stood up and said oh oh but we're not full um and we also know and this is something that um well, I, I don't know how many Americans actually kind of recognize this, but, you know, that there are entire industries on which the nation's economy depends that are funded or not that, not that, not that are funded, but that are driven strongly by immigrant labor. Right. Agriculture is a great example.
0: Agriculture. Right? Yeah, extremely.
1: Um, lots and lots of food processing. Uh, we're talking about, you know, if 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 we really were to erase immigrants and in some cases illegal immigrants, Mm-hmm. um, from the American landscape, uh, those, uh, those of us who, um, are citizens would be living a much different reality. And in most ways it would be far, I, I, in fact, I can't think of a way that it would be better, but, um, in, in many ways it would be far, far worse.
0: Well, I mean, there'd be this massive adjustment. I mean, oh, you yeah. talk about, you talk about class and you talk about, uh, you know, um, the term exploitation, yeah. um, and exploited labor is how we get, a lot of how yeah, we got a lot yeah. of wealth in this country and it's how it, the wealth has continued to be generated. So in that sense, yeah, without that, there'd be a radical readjustment.
1: Right. Of right. Our economy. Well, and, and I'm even thinking about this stuff, you know, ethics aside. Um, mm. and again, we could go down that forever, but you know, most Americans don't like to pay more for stuff. And right. if you have an entire huge sector of your economy, that works only because people are being paid far far below a living wage um, and if suddenly that disappears then you know that most Americans will feel it in their pocketbooks and that's a way to make people pay attention sadly so um, um, I see I see the use of chaos rhetoric in in the general demonization of um, of immigrants Trump is really great at talking about Democrats in general using yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, using chaos rhetoric um, you know the, this uh, back to immigrants, but you know talking about how Democrats want open borders—I've right. never actually Literally, to, no one. Yeah, right. no one has <laughs> ever said that. Um, but again, if you can exaggerate the truth, if you can heighten the fear, and if you can um, sort of constantly shift the target, then you can keep talking and usually uh, keep the good time going politically speaking until you oh, yeah. reach a certain goals
0: keep the, uh, keep the post on the enemy at hand. Yeah,
1: right, 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 right.
0: Right. And so, and then just, so seeing that we see that through the painting of immigrants as, you know, we have a new welfare queen essentially. Right, right. And it's the immigrant that simultaneously takes, you know, the, the, I forget what the, the meme is, but it's the immigrant that takes your job, but is also right. too lazy
2: yeah. Uh, right, right, uh to right, work right exactly uh, schrodinger's
0: immigrant i think um right and then we have uh perceptions of how they're getting all these uh, freebies, you know, all of mm-hmm. what's left of our welfare state right, <laughs> and right. they're just getting it. And, um, when actually they're paying for yours and mine retirement without getting anything back, if right. they're, you know, working these jobs that we're talking about. Um, but the same sort of rhetorical devices are, are being, being used and it's, it's so heavily, um, steeped in and in, in in rhetoric that it's hard to have a conversation with someone. And I've noticed this of starting from the same place and defining our terms the same way. That's instantly where I try to go now when it comes to a uh immigration debate with someone that we're having a disagreement on. Because we're talking, especially if you're taking some of this rhetoric as sort of face value, then it's really we're talking about two different realities. Mm-hmm. Um, So it makes it incredibly difficult. So I've been very unsuccessful in my conversations because of that. And maybe I just don't understand sort of how to uh, highlight what the rhetoric is. And that's part of why I wanted to have you on the show, too. And why I wanted to talk with you is because um, this there needs to be more of an awareness of of just the, from the 30,000 foot level, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And so I guess just sort of as we, as we wrap up again, um, what, what are the insights do you hope that readers gain from an awareness of this concept of chaos rhetoric?
1: Well, I, um, I know that we live in contentious political times, obviously. Mm. Um, but we've we've done that before. And so right. I, I think it is a mistake to think that what's happening culturally is unique. I think it's a mistake to think that it is unprecedented. Um, there might be some aspects of it that are unusual in the sense that, you know, the Internet did not exist Uh, until recently. And uh, as you know, the 24 hour news cycle did not exist until recently. Right. So our exposure is different in some important ways, but, but this is just part and parcel of how political contests work. I think that's really what I want the reader to know most of all. And um, I don't necessarily even mean political in the governmental way. I mean, political in the power relationship way. And if you want to understand, and I, this is something that I, I feel like I say all the time, but it's, it's really quite true if you want to understand one of the basic ways that power dynamics tend to, um, tend to emerge is that groups that are in power will almost always interpret the equality of a less powerful group as some sort of oppression. Right. And, so even though let's say, you know, if, if if men occupy this level of power, I don't know, this hand is power, okay? And if sure. women if women are beginning to, through legal and social and cultural shifts, are beginning to experience a sort of power that begins to reflect something close to what men experience, then the people who exist here will almost always interpret um another group's rise in power as some sort of threat. Now, of course, it's not a zero-sum game. This group and this group can both experience mm-hmm. power and no right, one wants to lose right. it. But, but that's not the way that um, human social systems tend to work. I mean, they tend right. to pit themselves against each other. So I think the most important thing I would like the reader to recognize is that powerful groups will almost always um, interpret less powerful groups as some sort of existential threat. And as... Uh, provoking again some sort of predatory—I um, don't even know how to put it. I, except, well, I, I think existential threat probably says it best. Some sort of, uh, of predatory um, negative relationship is is about to emerge. The country is about to die. Families are going to be forced to, you know, whatever it is. It is ironic that those in power often begin to perpetrate the very things that they warn about themselves um
0: because that's not what it's about
1: (laughs) right 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 so once you can see those patterns happening then it becomes a little bit easier to be able to ask about facts then it becomes a little easier to to see the social jobs or the social tasks that are happening and going on and once you can see that i think you're able to see a little bit clearer what dynamics really do dot the landscape rather than getting um lost in the echo chamber that is social media
0: Right. And yeah, no, that is sort of the threat that the perceived threat that's going on there of I so um, a podcaster um, I enjoy named Sam Cedar makes this point sometimes that um, you see when you grow up watching TV and you see um, people represented representing yourself who look like you who are all these sitcoms are relatable experiences to you specifically, Mm -hmm. um, just, and, and your sort of your skin color, they look like me, they, they kind of talk like me or, you know, there's some relatable factor. As you see that changing, there is this, um, this sense of threat that, that people (laughs) see, you know, and you get, um, uh, visceral responses and reactions to that of, a, of some kind of changing cultural norm. Um, and that can <laughs> that response can be really powerful, especially if it's uh, you have organizations like CWA mm-hmm. uh, or like Fox News mm-hmm. or the intellectual dark web and really? play on that and exploit that and pull that out and they know they find out which button to press when it comes to your reaction to that natural occurrence of hey i have less privilege than i did before (laughs) even if it's just a just a slight amount that's that's enough to create the visceral response and so uh our and increased awareness of this uh might help you (laughs) a little bit in that transition mm-hmm. to appreciate that no actually you're not losing anything right. even though even though there's um you know like you grew up in uh evangelical conservative church and you talked about how gay marriage is going to destroy your family somehow mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. uh but when I, all actuality nothing changes for you right. there's just uh uh a gay couple on TV now. Right. Right. Um, and but they might not be white the privilege,
1: right? What you said earlier, but it, they do, but it changes. Right. Right. But, but nothing, but that's not, that's not usually, you know, no one, no one gets on, you know, a podcast and says, I'm losing my privilege help. Right. That's, that's usually not. The well, I mentioned the thing.
0: IDW. That's almost no, <laughs> the, okay. uh, Jordan Peterson. Uh-huh. Sam, yeah, I, okay. yeah, I yeah, feel yeah. like we're yeah. almost, yeah, that's, there's like a whole new, um, uh, industry burgeoning there, but, Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, uh, cut it off there, but, uh, there's obviously different avenues we could keep, uh, keep exploring with that. But I, I really appreciate, um, you taking the time, um, after recovering from your India, uh, bug that you seem to have extracted.
1: But I, I never want to interact with it again. I think it's very Right,
0: scary. yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the knowledge isn't needed so much yeah. as the never having exactly, it again part.
1: Exactly, um, I, I, I've been telling people that, like, the two or three good things that came from that trip was that I got a cool pair of pants, I made a speech I had to make, and I have, you know, proven that I can get really sick in another country and survive. So three
2: good things.
0: <laughs> right. You I mean you are building resilience for the future. Or As something. a therapist, I love to hear that. Yeah, thank so you. good.
1: good. <laughs> I'm glad I said all the things right.
0: <laughs> you did say all the things right, which <laughs> Right. Uh so again, thank you so much. And uh, I'd love to have you back on in the future. There's plenty of rhetoric going around, so uh, a lot to be um, made aware of. Uh, yeah. Leslie Doro Smith. The uh, well, the book we talked about, "Righteous Rhetoric," and uh, let's see the sub. Uh, we can just get a screen of it. Oh yeah. I know you have that there. I yes. Do. Okay. So Righteous if you're watching. Rhetoric. And this is actually the first episode I'm maybe streaming on YouTube live. So we'll see if that
1: pans out. Sex, speech, and the politics of concerned women for America. That's that one. Yep.
0: that's that one. And your new book?
1: Compromising Positions, colon, I'm going to try it again. Sex Scandals, Politics, and American Christianity. I think that's right.
0: There it is. And you can find that where?
1: Oh, it'll be um, out in November, hopefully, with Oxford University Press.
0: Okay, Terrific. Uh, Leslie, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I, I really appreciate
2: it. Yeah, thanks. All right, bye
0: bye. Again, uh, that was Leslie Duro Smith, and uh, this has been a episode of Off Baseline, uh, first in a while. So I appreciate you um, uh, tuning in. And like I said, this is the first YouTube live episode. So, um, let me know feedback, provide comments, send me a message on social media. Let me know how that was received. And, uh, if we need to make any adjustments, we will do that. So, um, thanks so much for listening and, um, find us subscribe on itunes apple podcasts whatever it's called these days google play um etc Offbaseline.com has all the links you can find uh, Offbaseline on twitter as well um, and uh, i'm nate staley thanks for thanks for tuning in and uh, be well